Father, we thank you so much for this continued teaching, continued study in your word. And we thank you, Lord, that you can keep revealing to us your plan, your purpose, your will for our lives. Thank you, Lord, for opening our eyes, opening our hearts to understand you in a deeper way. Father, we do thank you for this book of uh, Nehemiah. We thank you, Lord, that as we study it, it will be revealed to us your purpose and your will for us. In Jesus' name, amen. So we left off at verse number four. And I believe that's even chapter one, right? Mm -hmm. So we just started. That's right. Uh, Diana called it that we'd only make it four verses in, and that's exactly where we got. So at this point, just to recap, Nehemiah had um, heard through the grapevine, through some of the folks who had been to Jerusalem and came back. They had, he had heard the report that Jerusalem was still in ruins, that the, uh, the wall was in disrepair, was in pieces. Um, the temple had been rebuilt, but they had not finished everything. And the city was, was uh, the, the houses were still torn down. But the biggest thing was the wall, because if there's no wall, then you cannot protect the city. Whatever you try to do um, gets re-destroyed. It isn't, it isn't uh, safe to, to put any money or time into anything because uh, it'll just get destroyed anyway. And so we had just read verse number four. When I had heard these things, I sat down and wept. For some days I mourned and, fast and pr- fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. And so um, Nehemiah is still in Persia. He's at the citadel of Susa. He's, he is a, he's a dignitary. What was his job again? He was the cupbearer. He was one of the most trusted officials um, because he was the one who tasted the food, tested everything, and if uh, if if someone wanted to do something to the king, he would have to go through Nehemiah. And so he was a very trusted official. And so it says that he sat down and he wept for days. He fasted and prayed for days. And we'll find out here very shortly, he actually ended up praying for four months. So he spends a good deal of of time in prayer, which is actually quite significant that he did that. But we'll talk about that more in in the light of the actual building of of the wall. So God's about to use Nehemiah to do something about this situation. But even more importantly, first God has to do something in Nehemiah. God wants to do things through us. He wants to work through us. But... Um, he can't do it unless he changes us inside. Because as at, in and of ourselves, we don't have it to do uh, something great for God. And anybody you've ever heard of that, that uh, was a great leader or a, you know, did something amazing for God always had an experience that changed them. Something happened where their heart changed, their, their desires changed, their drive changed. So God did something in them first and this is an example, or this is a documented situation or a case of God doing that to Nehemiah. He is deeply affected by the news, deeply affected by the, the desire to do 
this to, to, to rebuild the wall around Jerusalem. So God knew, uh, God saw the need from heaven, but there wasn't anything he could do until the right man came along. You know, that's a, that's a spiritual principle that, you know, there's all kinds of things that need to be done in this world. And many, and many times we can ask, we can say, well, what God, why don't you do something about this or that? Why don't you help change? Why don't you change that situation or whatever? But God can't just do it. He can't just, you know, wave the magic wand or, or in his case, speak the word and it, and it just automatically changes. He needs to do it through people. That's the whole purpose of, of from Genesis 1 on. He put man in the garden to, to subdue it and to bring it under the leadership of man. And, and it was supposed to increase from there. God put authority in man's hands. And he cannot violate his own authority. He cannot violate his own principles. And so he doesn't just fix the situation. You know, and a lot of people will pray and say, you know, God, fix America. Well, yeah, okay, that's great. But it's going to have to, it's going to take people making choices and doing things to change America. And it's going to take time. Here, it took him four months just to pray. I mean, all... Okay, let's step back from this. In the grand scheme of all the things that have ever happened in the Bible, how important is building a wall? I mean, how important is building a boat? How important is building a boat? Exactly. When you look at the task in and of itself, it seems minimal. It seems, you know, okay, they're going to rebuild a wall. But... As we talked about before, if if the wall is not in place, you cannot restart a civilization in those days, because people will not move back there. Houses can't be built. The raiders will keep coming and tearing them down. So people won't even try. Without a wall, they will not be able to restart the civilization. And in about four hundred to five hundred years, the Messiah is coming on the scene. <coughs> And there needs to be a city in place. And there needs to be a temple in place. And there needs to be all of these. There needs to be a Jewish civilization there. And then 500 years, 400 plus years, they'll, they'll be under not the Persian rule anymore, but under Roman rule. But it would not have happened unless Nehemiah built the wall. So God looks at all the details, all the things that, you know, he knows what we need. Uh, the Bible says that, you know, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added onto you. So when we look after God's plan, when, when God has a plan and he wants to fulfill that plan, there's a whole bunch of details that have to happen first. You know, uh, you know before, uh, I, I gave the testimony this last weekend about, about the, the guy that was the head of the mafia getting saved in that Solnok area. Well... That's awesome. That's a great testimony. That's cool what God did. And I mean, it was totally God because I don't even know what the interpreter said. I don't know. I just We just happened to be there and got to be a part of it. But if we hadn't bought a ticket, we wouldn't have gone. Would it have happened? If someone hadn't given the money to buy the ticket to have this happen, would it have happened? It's all the little details and, you know, and all the things that have to, have to all fit into place. 
for God's will to be fulfilled and not just my ticket, but other people's tickets and other people, you know, hotel rooms and all these, all the little details of things that have to go on. Well, before the Messiah come, there had to be a city. There had to be uh, a civilization. There had to be uh, a temple. There had to be worship. They, they had to be fulfilling the covenant for him to say, okay, now we're going to abolish this and we're going to institute this. So all of those details, it takes time even for God to work all those things out because he's working through human beings. And that's, and that's just the case with our lives. You know, I can pray and say, God, you know, I pray for this situation. I pray that this will change. But it could take time. It could take weeks. It could take months. It could take years. And many times it does. And we wonder, well, why doesn't God just do it immediately? Because there's details. And there's obedience that people, you know, if, if Nehemiah had said, I'm not building the wall. Give it, you know, let somebody else do it. Well, then God would have had to raise somebody else up. And so it's a, <coughs> excuse me. It's a case where it takes God time, even even to do the things that that are completely His will. But so God has to deal with Nehemiah, and He's dealing dealing with Nehemiah. He's changing him from the inside out. But it wasn't just a matter of Nehemiah having to be a part of it. The king had to be a part of it. The other leaders had to be a part of it. So on and so forth. So God is putting all of those things together. Leaders have to be prepared because the work is never easy. Just when you think, you know, being, you know, doing the will of God is going to be easy, something's going to happen. Something's something's going to change. Something's not going to work the way you want it to work. And that, that happened all the way through. I mean, look at Jesus' life. Um, he's halfway through his ministry, and, and a bunch of people, his, his own townspeople, grab him and try to throw him off a cliff. You know, he could have t- taken that situation and just said, you know what, forget you guys. I'm not dying for your sins. I'm out of here. I'm going to go do my own thing for till I die, or whatever. <laughs> you know, I mean, hey, he could have, but he didn't. You know, life isn't easy. It'll be, you know, doing what God tells you to do is not always easy and isn't always going to work out the way you hope to. We could spend the whole night on that. But we'll never get past verse number four. So he is praying, Lord, the God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and keep his commandments. Let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant is praying before you day and night. For your servants, the people of Israel, I confess the sins we Israelites, including myself and my father's family, have committed against you. We have acted very wickedly toward you. We have not obeyed the commands, decrees, and laws you gave your servant Moses. So humility <coughs> is the first step. Humility is where he has to start in this. So humility is where it has to begin. And it, it, as his prayer states, humility is, the first step of humility is just recognize that God is God. God is God and we're not. And, you know, to do anything, even see me, you know, I mean, 
we know that the building of the of the wall is not a small thing, but seemingly small. I mean, what's what's so important about building a wall? <coughs> but he he realizes he's going to need God's help, and he needs to to be uh, humble before God, and he needs to confess the sins. The sins are what got him in the pro, in, in the situation in, in the first place. It was those. It was the sins of the fathers, the, the sins of the Israelites, who got them there. So he is is uh, taking no chances, and he is confessing his sins before God. So he recognized exactly who God is: the Lord of Heaven, great and awesome God, Nehemiah one. Thank you. <laughs> And who keeps his covenant and mercy with those that he loves. He recognizes the fact that even though the people didn't didn't keep the covenant, God will. God keeps his covenant with them. So he's asking God to be attentive to his to the to his prayers, attentive to their needs, and he understands that complete dependence on God is humility. Realizing that it's God's deal. It's not our deal. It's God's. And God will allow you to be fruitless to expose your need for total dependence. And that is absolutely true. They have spent 70 years being fruitless. They've, been, they've spent 70 years sitting and doing nothing. I mean, seemingly nothing. They've been busy in the government. They've, you know, they've done a bunch of amazing things, but not doing what God told them to do, to go into the land, subdue the land, and be fruitful in it. Enjoy the inheritance that they've received. Verse 8, remember the instruction you gave your servant Moses, if you are unfaithful, I will scatter you, but if you return to me and obey my commands, then even your exiled people are at their furthest, at the furthest horizon, I will gather them from there and bring them to the place I have chosen as a dwelling for my name. He is reminding God what he said he would do. That's a powerful way to pray, to pray. That is, to just pray, oh God, uh, meet my needs. You know, that's, you know, that's, a, that's a, a, an explanation of need. It's a, a declaration of need. But what Nehemiah is doing, saying he's saying, God, here's what you said you would do for us. Yes, we sinned. Yes, we're, we got sent into exile. But you said, if we humbled ourselves that you would bring us back from that exile. Well, here's our opportunity. We've done our 70 years. So, Lord, <coughs> he's reminding God what um, he had said he would do. So, Nehemiah quoted Leviticus 26 and Deuteronomy 30, which were the, the promises that God gave Moses um, along that line. It is a secret to great power in prayer to plead the promises of God. So what are some of the promises of God that we have as believers? Never leave us and forsake us. never fail us. That's awesome. That's huge. You know, I mean, in, in your worst moment, when you have nothing else to hold on to, that will get you through. And that's a great thing to, and we can pray that. You know, Lord, you said you would never leave us or forsake us. Now, God, does God already know that he said that? Yeah. Absolutely. But in saying that, you're putting your faith behind his words. 
That's what's so powerful, is you're agreeing with him. You're saying, you're saying, God, here's what you said you would do. I believe it. I believe it enough to repeat it back to you. You will never leave me and you'll never forsake me. And in that moment when you feel, when everything seems to say he's leaving us and forsake, or everybody else has left us and forsake, forsook us, it is by, by praying out those words, it is a powerful testimony of where your faith is at. Excellent. Any more? Nothing can separate us from <coughs> Not Neither height nor depth or width or breadth or, or uh, angels or demons or anything else can separate us from the, from the love of God. Absolutely. And it blesses us coming in, blesses us going out. Mm-hmm. Blesses us all the time. Mm-hmm. Yes. All of those things we can pray. You know, and we can, we remind God, but it also, like David said, it encourages us. We build ourselves up. We, we, uh, uh, well, we encourage ourselves. Well, God said he'd never leave us or forsake us. He, he never said there was anything, or he said there was never, not anything that could ever separate us from him. That he would meet all of our needs. We'd be blessed in the, in the coming in and coming out. All of those things, as we pray those out, it isn't just our good idea. It's things that God said he would actually do. So that's why it's important to know those things. Because if we have them down into our heart, they'll come out in that time of need. If we don't have them, if we've never read them, or we, we've not read them enough to know that, okay, that, I heard something about that, but or somebody you know told you about it, but you never really got it into their, by, for yourself, it won't come out. You know, It, it can't come out because it's not in there. It also strengthens our position against the enemy that's trying to convince us otherwise, too. So if we have it clear in one of these type of verses that, um, that God will never leave us or forsake us, or that there is no condemnation in, for those who are in Christ Jesus, and the enemy is trying to convince us that God has left us, mm-hmm. or that, that we are being condemned for failing, that, that we can have a confidence in knowing the truth in that situation to, to kind of fight off the, the, the attempts of the enemy to, to get us to believe otherwise. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And Nehemiah is going to need that because he's going into a situation where the enemy is going to try to tell him he can't do it, that he's not going to succeed, that he's going to fail, that God's not with him. You know, there's even where we're supposed to get to today, <laughs> whether we'll actually get there or not. There is a place where somebody comes at him and gives him a spiritual, you know, super spiritual, oh, well, God told me that you need to come and do this and we'll worship God together and, and you'll be protected. And and Nehemiah goes, no, that's not what I'm going to do. <laughs> because he, understand, he understood what, the, what God's will was for his life. And so enemies take on all kinds of different forms. It can be somebody who comes at you hard, you know, directly against you. Or it can sound like a friend who's trying to give you a good idea and trying to divert you away from fulfilling God's plan for your life. Sometimes it can even be yourself. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, that's... The self-doubt, you know, mm-hmm. is that really true? Mm-hmm. Comes in. Yep. And, and we need the Word of God to, get, to, to counteract that. 
we need the word word of God to counteract all the other situations that have ever, ever happened to us. Because a lot of times, when it's ourselves that are, are talking, you know, when we're talking ourselves out of the situation, it's because of past history. Well, the word of God is bigger and stronger than self history, you know, or than, than than our history. I don't care what it used to be like. I don't care what I what I used to be. I don't care how many times I've messed up. God said, this is the way the thing is, is going to happen. It's the way it's going to work. I think an aspect of why the humility initially was also really important is, is related to this, where, where a person can talk themselves out of it or get themselves diverted into another direction. So if you take the, the perspective of, yeah, building a wall seems like it's not terribly significant. And without the... I mean, in the larger context of protecting the city and whatever. But mm-hmm. if uh, Nehemiah had started to say, well, you know, building a wall is good, then this other thing must be better, and got off track in doing mm-hmm. something else because he thought it was a good idea and basically was relying on his own understanding and his own direction to, to do something for God, um, that that's that comes from having not laid down his will in the first place. I think when when that, mm-hmm. that tends to happen, and so that's why I think it's. I mean, that's that's part of essentially the prerequisite of 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 the humility initially, so that you can actually stay on course to to do what God tells you, even if it doesn't seem to your human understanding that that that's the right thing to do or the best thing to do. With, with the situation you have. So. Yep. Amen. Amen. So one part of prayer, one part of, of praying the prayer or praying a prayer according to the scripture, according to the promises that God's already laid out, is to, to comfort ourselves, to 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 build up ourselves, to to convince ourselves this is what God wants to do. But secondly, is before God can do anything, we have to ask. That's why we pray. Prayer is not to get God to do something. God needs to get us to pray so that he can do something. That's, that's part of, of this uh, co-laborer with Christ is that God has his part to play. God has his powerful, miraculous, all-knowing, all-seeing, all-doing part that he plays as God. But he needs the human element. That we, he needs human beings to say, God, um, your word says that, that you desire that all be saved. Where did all of these bugs come from? Did you, did you see all these bugs? There's like dozens of them flying around all of a sudden. I hope they didn't come in with the candy. Um, where was I? Co-laborers. Co-laborers. He needs us to ask. That's that's what prayer is, because he's it's it's he's put that authority into man's hands, our hands, and he needs us to say, "Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven." And so, um, unless we do that, he won't do a thing. He can't do it because he will not usurp man's authority in the earth. And so. That's why he needs us to do our our part. <coughs> so, 
So Nehemiah concluded by asking God to bless him that he would soon speak to the king. Nehemiah was going to do something about the sorry state of, of Jerusalem's walls and people. And he knows without God's intervention, he can do nothing. In verse 10 and 11, he asked God, open up an opportunity for me to speak to the king. Um, you know, Give your servant success today, the end of verse 11, by granting him favor in the presence of this man. And so um, Nehemiah is ready to move. Now we don't we know that that he prayed for four months leading up to this. And now after praying for four months, now he's ready to act. He's you know and, and you can pray all you want, but if you don't do something, it'll never happen. And so there is a point where you say, Okay, today I'm moving forward. And he knew that God was going to give him opportunity. He recognized the need. But he also recognized the or recognized the the responsibility that he had to do something about it. Spurgeon said, laying the matter to heart, he did not begin to speak with other people about what they would do, nor did he drop a wonderful scheme about what might be done if so many thousand people joined in the enterprise. But it occurred to him he would do something himself. And, and that is kind of the problem. That's, that is a, that's a big problem in, in Christianity is when we see a need and God changes us. You know, we go through that first step that, that Nehemiah went through where, where he realized the burden and he, he, had a, he, he got a heart for the people or for the situation. And he began to pray. And so now he prayed for a long time and... The problem is, is what you could then do is go, Lord, have somebody do something about this situation. <coughs> Excuse me. When in reality, we're the ones who are supposed to do it. If God puts it on your heart, if God puts it on, if, if you can see the problem, many times it's because he wants you to do it. Nehemiah didn't say, Lord, Get somebody, you know, give somebody the courage to go talk to the king. Lord, you know, get, get somebody who really cares. What, how come there's nobody who cares about the, the walls of Jerusalem? Lord, you know, there's got to be somebody out there, Lord, who cares about the walls of Jerusalem. Move on their heart, Lord, to go do that. And I see that in the church. I see that, you know, people will come to me and go, you know, we have this missing in the church. And I've learned over the years, <laughs> if it's on their heart, many times it's become, every time, I shouldn't say many times, every time, it's because God is moving on their heart to do something about it. Now then they go through that whole process of, well, it can't be me, I don't, I don't have the ability, I, what, do I, what can I do, yada, yada. But Nehemiah understands God put this on his heart for a reason. And he recognized the fact that he was in a position to do something about it. Now somebody might say, well, I don't, I'm not in a position to do something about it. I just heard a really interesting, I was talking to a friend of mine uh, a couple of months ago, and he said that uh, they got a phone call one day. And um, 
he has a school of ministry at his church, and and he would you know they they prepare people to be ready to go at a moment's notice, you know, ready to go do something. If that's what you know, if God opens the door, they're ready to go. They're trained. They're ready. Let's go. He got a phone call from one of their missionary organizations, and the missionary organization said, um, "I need, we need someone to come to Africa for nine months." Literally, they don't have to have any qualifications. All they have to be is American. Because according to their charter, they have to have an American on staff. That's part of the the money. The people they get their money from says that they have to have an American with the idea that it's it's the American can teach English as a second language kind of a deal. But he says, teaching English as a second language, okay, this is a bottle. Say bottle. <laughs> you know. These are glasses. You know. So it doesn't have to be the person didn't have to be, you know, a linguist. They didn't have to go through years and years of this or whatever. And so they began to pray about, okay, Lord, they need a they need an American for nine months to live in, in whatever I can't remember what country it is now. So he, he had actually sent an email to me and said, Do you know of anybody? And I, you know, I didn't know it. We didn't, nobody's, nobody has come to me and says, you know, I have a burden for Africa. I need to go for nine months soon, you know. Um, but they were praying, and all of a sudden, he got the name of one of his students. Young, 20-something, single, white girls, American. You know, single American girl. Now, the, least, the person I would not pick to go. Yeah, we're going to put you on a plane and send you to Africa for nine months. Good luck. See you later. Have a wonderful time. All expense paid. They 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 said don't. We will even pay the person to come. They just they just needed a body now. And he thought that's crazy. I would. She'd be the last person I send there. And, but, he went there because he he says I could he could not get away from it that she was the one who was supposed to go. So he called her up. He said, "Can I set up a? Can we set up a meeting? I have something I want to talk to you about." She came in. He said, "This is crazy," but he says, "I feel like I'm supposed to ask you. Do you want to go to Africa for nine months?" And she just broke down crying because she had been praying for months. God had put it on her heart to pray for the people of Africa, and she just—it's just this overwhelming burden that she just knew she was supposed to be praying for people and praying for the people of Africa. And when this came up, it, the, the decision was easy. She goes, I'll go. I have nothing to hold me back here. I'll go. Now, all of us could look at this and go, well, she's not qualified. And she's a single you know, white girl from, from Wisconsin. Well, you know, That would not be the person I would send to the middle of Africa. But God knows better. God knows what he's doing. And he, he had already touched her heart. And she, but she was willing to go. So, who can God use? Available people, he can use, and he will use them. We just have to be willing to, willing to go. Recognition of need must be followed by earnest, persistent waiting upon God until the overwhelming sense of world need becomes a specific burden in my soul for one particular piece of work which God would have me do. All right. I believe we are now in chapter 
too. So, I was the cupbearer to the king. Artaxerxes sends Nehemiah to Jerusalem. So, the last verses of Nehemiah 1 told us that the Nehemiah was the cupbearer, was the king's cupbearer, a significant position of an ancient royalty, or in the ancient royal court. The cupbearer was a personal bodyguard to the king, being the, the one who tasted wine and food before the king did, making sure that no one would poison the king. Kind of a tough job, is it? Yeah, just eat and drink. Yep. Yeah, but you're the unlucky one. <laughs> but, and it was interesting, one thing I was reading, they said... If someone wanted to successfully kill the king, they would have to get the cupbearer on their side. Okay. They wouldn't just send, you know, poison the food and send it in because the cupbearer, knowing the cupbearer was going to taste it. He'd be the first one to die. You wouldn't get to the king that way. It wouldn't get to the king. Yeah. He would die. And then they would immediately start looking for who did it. Right. And it would be it would be easy to trace it back then. So if you really wanted to poison the king, if you really wanted to get to the king, he would be the guy you'd have to get on your side to fake the tasting. And so in that, the cupbearer's position was actually a pretty secure... Yeah, very trusted, very secure position because the king would have to trust him implicitly implicitly that he wouldn't double-cross him. So not just anybody. It wasn't like... You know who, who's the next piece of fodder yeah. coming in because it, it needed to be somebody that he probably knew his whole life. He may have grown up with him, um, you know, a number of things. So, um, yeah, but it but it was a it's actually a pretty good gig. You know, I mean, just you just have to you just you just have to know what's going on in the kingdom. You have to be connected. You have to know uh, for your own safety too. All right. The cupbearer was also a trusted advisor to the king, since he was constantly in the king's presence and greatly trusted and a man of character. It was natural that the cupbearer would often be asked his opinion on different matters coming before the king. Chapter 2, verse 1. In the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of our King Artaxerxes, when wine was brought to him, I took the wine and gave it to the king. I had not been sad in his presence before. So the king asked me, Why does your face look so sad when you are not ill? This can be nothing but sadness of heart. So, uh, interesting note. Why is it so important for God to tell the date these things happen? Um... It's first to show that Nehemiah prayed and waited for four months. That's how we know he prayed. He waited for four months. He prayed and waited for four months because in the beginning of chapter one, it gives a date. Now it gives another date. We know it's four months later. He didn't just get an idea and go do it because, you know, that's, that's the other problem some people get into is, oh, well, we're supposed to go do this and let's go boom and we go do it. No. It's, it's important to pray things through. It's important to wait for God's timing. And by praying things through, then we can actually know God's timing. And we can know it's the right time to move. So, uh, the date is also important because it establishes the date given to restore Jerusalem and its walls. 
Daniel 9.25 says that exactly 173,880 days from this day, which was March 14th, 445 B.C., the Messiah would be presented to Israel. So Robert, this is, so, so the date that is established here, Daniel says that once the, the, the walls are restored, 173,880 days from this day is when the Messiah will, will be presented to Israel. Sir Robert Anderson, the eminent British astronomer, astronomer and mathematician, makes a strong case that Jesus fulfilled this prophecy exactly to the day entering Jerusalem on April 6, 32 AD, precisely 173,880 days from Nehemiah to 1. So, April so, 6 was Palm Sunday then? It would have been Palm Sunday. Yep. And you were crucified two days later? Tuesday. <laughs> no, he was. He would have been crucified a day later. Well, yeah, a day later. Monday night. Well, that's a whole other discussion. It's it's a theory that I have, and I I think I'm, I think I worked it out pretty good, <laughs> but it's too long to explain it right now. So, what day was he crucified? Because Wednesday, right. not Friday. Yeah, that's it. Yeah, we talked about them. So on April, I'm Sunday to Wednesday. Sunday was Palm no. Sunday. The day. Nine, April 9th. Yeah, he, he, he came in on Palm Sunday. Which? Yep. Well, here it says April 6, 32 AD, so that would have been Sunday. Yeah. Yep. First day of the week. Yeah. Yep. And he was crucified on Wednesday. Yep. Because three full days, he was, in the, he was in the tomb three full days, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, and he rose on Sunday morning, the first day of the week. Right? So I never understood is growing up Catholic when he we have Good Friday and yeah, it says he rose three days later. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Wait a minute, that's more crap. Exactly. Yep. Anyway. Yeah, it was a good sermon here that one time. Yeah. Made a lot of sense. It was alright. It was alright. <laughs> so the king said to me, What is it you want? Then I prayed to the God of heaven, and I answered the king, If it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in his sight, let him send me to the city in Judah, where my ancestors are buried, so that I can rebuild it. Now, so the king asks him, what can I do for you? And it says that he prayed. It was not a long prayer. (laughs) I can guarantee that. You know, there are times when you pray for four months, and then there's times when you pray in one second. Okay, here we go. (laughs) Exactly. But you're acknowledging God. Okay, God, I need your help here. So, Right away, Nehemiah knew God had given him favor because the king's response wasn't off with your head. Um, it was, what can, you do? what can I do for you? So Nehemiah knew that four months of prayers were answered. So I prayed to the God of heaven. Knowing his prayer had been answered, though, Nehemiah still prayed again. It wasn't a long prayer. It wasn't an extended prayer. Um, it was, help me, Lord. And he moved forward. Verse 6. Then the king with the queen sitting beside him, asked me, how long will your journey take? And when will you get back? It pleased the king to send me, so I set a time. So, when he saw that it was time, that God had given him the favor, 
He didn't waste any time. And it's interesting because his answer here shows something, starting with verse 7. I also said to him, if it pleases the king, may I have letters to the governors of Trans-Euphrates so that they'll provide me safe conduct until I arrive in Judah. May I have a letter to Asaph, king, uh, keeper of the royal park, so he'll give me timber to make beams for the gates of the citadel by the temple and for the city wall and for the residence I will occupy. And because the gracious hand of my God was on me, the king granted my request. So when he was given the opportunity to speak, he didn't just say, I feel bad for Jerusalem. No, he had a plan. That In that four months of time that he prayed, that he spent time praying, God gave him a plan. He knew that he was going to need letters to get there, safely, safe transportation, letters to show the people when he got there, the other governors, that, hey, the king says I can do this. Other letters to say, I'm going to need uh, material, and I'm going to need wood and all the other stuff that I need to build my house and the houses of those that are working with me. And he needed all of those letters. And the king said, well, I'm going to send a cavalry with you. So it wasn't that he just came in and said, you know, God, I, or, or king, I, I want to build a, rebuild the wall. And the king says, well, how are you going to do that? I don't know. I just, you know, I, I don't know. <laughs> well, how long is it going to take? I don't know. It's a while. No, God, he spent four months so that when he walked in the door, he knew he had a plan, and God fulfilled that plan all the way. So, he knew how long it would take, he knew what letters he needed, he knew uh, what materials he needed, he even knew that he needed a house to live in while he did it, and God fulfilled every one of them. Verse 10, when Sanballat, the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite official heard about this, they were very much disturbed that someone had come to promote the welfare of the Israelites. These guys were also officials um, in that same area, not over Jerusalem, um, because uh, Nehemiah became the governor of Jerusalem, governor of that area. But these guys were close by. And there's a lot of tension that's going to start building as they go along because of they're afraid of their position. And they're afraid of the... It's It really has more to do with economic stress, economic tensions, than anything else. Because these guys were running the show. They were making money off of the people that were living there. They were, you know... they're. They're far enough out in the wilderness that the king couldn't be involved in their daily affairs. They were making money. And we'll see that as we get further into this, that uh, Tobiah had all kinds of covenants with the Jews that were, let, that were there. They had married into his family. There was all kinds of, of commerce going on. And, so, and he was not happy that they were building a wall because that meant, hey, there's a new guy in town. He's rebuilding the wall. If this thing takes off, all of my, my commerce, I'm no longer the big fish in the pond. I'm going to be, this, this guy you know, could be the one, you know, these guys could have their own thing. And especially if he knew that Jews, and, it, and you know, Ezra had already done it, made them break off all those ties with the people who were there before. And so he's like, well, great, now they're really going to do this. He, he could see his, their, uh, their uh, financial world starting to crumble. Verse 11. 
I went to Jerusalem, and after staying there three days, so this is another example of Nehemiah's godly uh, leadership. He actually went. It's one thing to pray about it. It's one thing to talk a talk. But then you have to go do what God put on your heart. And it wasn't an easy thing. Moving from the palace to go live in the rubble of Jerusalem was not an easy thing. It was not, you know, a glamour job. It was, you know, he's going to a place where nobody else wants to go. The undesirables, the, you know, the, the, the bombed out rubble of an old town. But he knew it was God's will, and so he actually did it. Um, he traveled 800 miles from Persia to Jerusalem to do the work of rebuilding the walls and the people. That's a long trip in that day. Oh, well, it's a huge trip. Yep. And how do you get there, too? You've got to make sure you know where you're going. Yep. Well, and, and there, there was a large number of people that went with him because the number of the Jews, the number of the, the uh, exiles went back with him and a cavalry and other officials and you had to figure out all the food you had to figure out the lodging along the way I mean, it, was a, it was a huge undertaking it's like from here to Denver is it 800 miles? I don't think so yeah. how long did that take? it's an hour flight now <laughs> <laughs> yeah I don't know I, I would imagine weeks at least weeks yeah. you know when the, when the uh, settlers were going west um, back in the old west days they could go 15 miles a day so you know I don't know 15 miles mm-hmm. that'd be about 75 days travel yeah wow that was the average speed that they could move was 15 miles a day that's been that good weather too I'm sure mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. that's crazy is that a long ways? No, it seems like a very short ways. Well, they probably had days that they could go a lot more than that, and then they go down well, grind the uh, obstacle that holds them up for two days. Unpack and everything to eat, and then pack everything back up, and then mm-hmm. you have to stop at McDonald's and things. That's when you need to eat people. Someone's always got to go to the bathroom. Yeah. Are we there yet? You know, I mean, that's right. How many times did they say that? Exactly. So you take them out and make that one start walking and pulling something. <laughs> That's right. That's, do I have to come back there? All right. Many people have their hearts touched like Nehemiah's was. Uh, they also may have a heart to pray and for the wisdom, the vision, the plan, and and the faith of Nehemiah. But many people stop short of actually doing what God has put on their heart. That's that's the problem. We we need to be people who fulfill it, who walk it out, who actually go and do what God tells us to do. Sometimes people substitute talking about something for actually doing it. It's one thing to stand around with, with other believers and talk about doing some evangelism, praying about it, planning it, and talking about it, it's another thing to actually go out and do it. God is into doing the thing. Amen? 
Our spiritual enemies don't mind as don't mind as long as all we do is plan and pray and talk. But when God's people start doing something, that's when they take notice. So, verse twelve, Nehemiah says, "I set out during the night with 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 a few others. I had not told anyone that my God had put in my heart to do for Jerusalem. There were there were no mounts with me except the one I was riding on." So when so Nehemiah goes out to look at the at the walls, he he goes out into Jerusalem to look at the walls, and he goes out at night when nobody knows that he's going to leave, and he has everything in place, but he hasn't told anybody what he's to do. That's wisdom. You don't always tell everybody everything you're about to do because that that gives opportunity for the enemy to know ahead of time and to stop you even earlier. That's interesting when you consider the the trip and all the people that went that great distance and they didn't actually know why they were going. That's kind of... That is very interesting, isn't it? It's kind of a big deal. Yeah. Kind of like, how do I pack for this trip? Just, well, bring, you know, winter clothes and summer clothes and... Construction stuff. Construction stuff, yeah. (laughs) Bring some tools. So, Nehemiah, look at this whole thing. Nehemiah gets a need, gets a burden for Jerusalem, prays about it for four months, risks his life to go before the king. Finally, the door opens for him to go before the king. He makes his plea. The king goes in his favor. He gets everything he needs. Literally, we'll find out that the king actually pays for the walls to be completed. He pays the bills on this whole thing. And he travels 800 miles months probably with all of these people and gets other people to go with him. He gets all the way to Jerusalem and then what does he do? He doesn't do anything for three days. He waits. Why? I think some of it was to give the people time to rest after the journey. Mm -hmm. But I think some of it was probably that he was waiting on God for the Mm -hmm. next the next step to take. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because he he could have done all kinds of things. Mm-hmm. Could have started the work right away. He could have started. You know, he could have taken a whole group of people to go look at the at the at the wall. But he didn't. He just sat and waited. Yeah, it could be very much that he. I don't know. I mean, does I don't. There isn't really an answer for it. There's nothing in scripture that says it. But could be that he was just waiting for God to tell him, "Okay, go out by yourself tonight and go look at the wall." There might have been some of what took place in that four months that he was trying to connect with what he would find there, too. I mean, mm-hmm. he might have had things that he was told mm-hmm. that he would see, and he might, might have been looking for what God had already told him to. Yep. He might have had camel leg. <laughs> Sorry. Funny, you know, the thing is, back then you could probably see it at night too because it was so bright out. It's kind of, I was reading this thinking, gee, it's at night, but then again, you can see at night if you're in the right spot with stars out. Mm-hmm. So Jerry Jones tells me. So. Is that what he says? Yeah, that's too, Jerry. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he said he's been in places where you know, it's literally so bright out at night you can, your shadow, you can see your shadow on the ground. Mm-hmm. So. Yep, full moon nights, especially. Mm-hmm. All right. 
So he told no one. He didn't tell anybody what he was doing, um, what he was about to do. Um, it's good to have Christian friends, but it's dangerous to wear your heart on your sleeve. This is a, a theologian named Redpath that says this. Have a secret place somewhere which nobody knows about except you and God. It's good to go to the Lord and, and let Him sort things out and before you ever reveal it to anybody else. Spurgeon says, You will often find it best not to commit your plans to others. If you want to serve God, go and do it, and then let other people find out afterwards. You have no need to tell what you're what you are going to do. And I may add, there is no need for you retelling what you have done for very for very, very frequently God withdraws himself when we boast of what is being done. It's an interesting addition to all that. So Nehemiah goes out, he starts going down the wall and it gives a, a detail of where he went. He went to the jackal gate. He went to the dung gate. I wouldn't want to live by the dung gate. It's not the most picturesque part of town. I don't. Think. <laughs> um, everywhere he were, everywhere he went, the wall was broken down. The gates were burned with fire. He went to the fountain gate, the king's pool. Riding along, and he still said nothing to anybody about what he what he was doing. So then he goes, he gets back home the next day. He says to them in verse 17, You see the trouble we are in. Jerusalem lies in ruins and its gates have been burned with fire. Come, let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem and we will no longer be in disgrace. I also told them about the gracious hand of my God on me and what the king had said to me. So literally, like Justin said, he didn't tell anybody anything. He didn't even tell them on that trip where they were going or why they were going there. He didn't tell them what the king had said. He didn't tell them about any of that stuff because he just he knew better. He knew that there was going to be enemies. He knew that he, you know he did, maybe he needed to get there and find out. Maybe there's nothing left. Maybe there's literally nothing left. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for so. The citizens and leaders of Jerusalem were not sitting around waiting for a superman to come along and rebuild their walls. In all probability, they had come to accept that it was an impossible job. It seemed that no one could fix a hundred-year-old problem. These these walls had been broken down for a hundred years in ruins. (coughs) Years ago, when someone had tried, enemies simply stopped them. So, oh, there's windows open on cars out there. So I don't know if you were, when I went out to get the the thing, I realized that some some people had left their windows open. Um, yeah, the thunder. It was thunder. Oh, really? And it's gonna be it's raining. Right now. Yeah. Oh, that was fast. It's supposed to rain until Friday or something like that. Yeah, the next three days. Last fire. What was called? Rooted fast. Anyway, go ahead. So they they didn't think they could fix a hundred year old problem when years ago when someone tried, enemies simply stopped them. So they lived with it. Um, so then uh, Nehemiah told them um, he explained his vision for the rebuilding of the walls. There was a tremendous amount of importance attached to the meeting. To the meeting, Nehemiah could not do the job himself. He was in a lot of trouble if the leaders didn't support him. 
that's huge. I mean, here he went through all of this. He went through every bit. We've already talked about it, and I can reiterate it again, but he went through all these months, this preparation, the planning, the, the material, taking his life in his own hand a few times, getting all the way there, and it all hinged on this one meeting where he explained the vision to the people. As a leader, that is the scariest moment. After they're already there. After they're already there, Yep. Because, because, you know, you can have everything prepared, you could have done everything yourself, but if the people don't buy into it, it isn't going to happen. Because you can't do it yourself. He couldn't do it himself. But here's where you trust God even more. Here's, here's where you believe that, okay, God brought me this far. Somebody said, oh, that, that's one of the verses that, eh, not a verse, it's just a truth that I repeat all the time. Okay, God did not bring me this far for, to let me fail. And so, you know, you, you just, at that point, you walk by faith and you do the next step, even though literally they could have vetoed it. They could have stopped right there. But they didn't. They didn't stop. Who was living there again at the time? So the Samaritans. But then there had also been uh, two different groups that had come back. A group came with Zerubbabel okay. and rebuilt the temple. Another group came back with Ezra, Ezra, okay, and had reestablished the the worship at the at the temple, and those were Jews from the from the um, um, well, I have Exodus in my head. I guess not the Exodus. It's the from the exiles. Exiles, the exiles. So the, the second group now, and now a third group came with him with okay. Nehemiah. So they're going to rebuild the city. Right now they're going to rebuild the walls, and then after that they start rebuilding the city. But and there's a whole list of them uh, in the in Nehemiah where it describes who came. So there's you know there are many thousands of people back now. Uh, you know uh, what was the number we saw in Ezra? What was do anybody remember? Was it ten thousand? I know it was only a small percentage of all of them that were there in in uh, in. Jerusalem, but or that it was all that it was only a small percentage came back from Babylon or Persia, um, but I don't know, like, you know, the, the actual numbers. It's in the it's in Ezra and, and yeah, it's at the end of Ezra. So three yeah, it was like three percent of a million. Is that what it was? Was there a million exiles? Three percent. Yeah, but it was so it was a very small percentage, but it's still a big number. You know, maybe tens of thousands. But there, so there's the tens of thousands of of uh, exiled Jews who were all Jewish. They were they, they had not intermarried. Then there were the Samaritans, the people that were living there and had intermarried with all of the Canaanite families there. So there's there's a there's a bunch of people there by this point. But there's still no wall, and there's they're still living in danger every day. All right, so their reply was, let us start rebuilding. And so they began this good work. So, praise God, God had already worked in their hearts. He was probably glad it wasn't an hour flight to get there because he knew that uh, all the stuff that got in favor with the king and the provisions and the whole group was on their way, but he had time to pray about that meeting mm-hmm. during his trip. Exactly. Yep, everything in its right time. 
So they said, yes, Nehemiah, we're with you. Um, it could have happened anyway, but it didn't. They might have denied the need for the walls. You know, we, you know, we have gotten along with these walls for a hundred years now. After all, we're already we already have a temple, but uh, we want to do far more than simply get along. God has more for us, and now is the time to enter in. They might have seen the project as too much work, and at first they did. People talked about it, it's too big. It's, there's there's it's going to take too long. They might have seen the opposition as being too strong. There was opposition and there was threats. So why even start? But they didn't look at any of that and they just said, let's build. Let us start to rebuild. Verse 19. So when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite official and Geshem the Arab heard about it, they mocked and ridiculed. What is this you are doing? They asked. Are you rebelling against the king? So Tobiah is interesting to me. I, I had always thought, because I hadn't studied this to any, any depth, I always thought these two guys were somebody from the outside, that they were Canaanites, or they were, you know, one of them says he's an Ammonite, but he's not a, he's not a full Ammonite. He's actually Jewish. Both of these men are Jewish. They have Jewish heritage, and they they but they intermarried. They're of, they're of the people who intermarried, and so they're not they're not hundred percent Hebrew, hundred percent Jewish. Tobiah is a Jewish name. He was a man of influence, being associated with the high priest family. So he is he is he's counted among the high priest family. And he was getting help from the priest in Nehemiah 13.4. Tobiah was a prominent name in priestly families for generations to come. The name Tobiah literally means Yahweh is good. A strange name for a man who is an opponent to the work of God. But to me, the interesting part was he's Jewish. I didn't know that. I had never heard that before. I never picked it up before. Sanballat was connected by marriage to the to the priestly families. Nehemiah 13.28 He was an, uh, an ancient document from this period refers to Sanballat as the governor of Samaria. And so um, this, this is one of the references, one of the for instances when, when the Bible um, predated you know obviously it predated but it it had information in it that was not uh, was, was believed to be untrue until they found archaeological evidence that it is true. It, it's, it's stated in the Bible thousands of years before they found the do- another document that said that he was the governor of Samaria. But he was related to the priest. Remember in Ezra where a number of the priests had intermarried with the uh, the locals in the area, and they were told to put their wives aside. They were you know told to, to put to put them out, their wives and children. Well, Sanballat, you can see why Sanballat would hold a grudge against the Jews then, uh, because to him it's like, well, wait a second here, we were family, and now you're you know you're you're doing this, and we'll find out there's even more to it that he that there was actually uh, trade agreements that were that were in place because of these marriages 
that were being broken, and then and that's why these guys were so ticked. So these men were Jews; they were fellow brothers, and they were citizens of Jerusalem. Um, we might have thought that they would be, have supported the work, but they do not. Verse twenty. Nehemiah answers them, The God of heaven will give us success. We, his servants, will start rebuilding. And as for you, you have no share in Jerusalem or any claim or historic right to it. So Nehemiah did not answer their accusation. Did you notice that? He didn't say, No, I'm not rebelling against the king. His first answer is, God's going to give us success. You guys can say anything you want, but God is going to give us success. And this is who we are. He proclaimed who he was and what he was about to do. So Nehemiah and his followers had a job to do. Not for a moment did he say, well, gee, maybe this isn't God's will. They had agreed to rise up and build, and that's what he was about to That's what he decided they're going to do. In facing their enemies, he had to keep focused on who they were and what they were called to do. That is the number one thing that believers stumble on. Is we, we run up against a, 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 some kind of resistance, whatever it may be. Um, in, our, in our everyday life, it may be somebody accusing us. That's exactly what was happening here. Oh, well, you're trying to do this, or you're, you think you're something special, or, or it may be a lack of provision, or it may be whatever it is. The thing we have to remember is, was remember what, what Nehemiah prayed at the beginning. He, he prayed, here's who you are, God. Here's what you have done. Here's what you have promised. We need to keep that same attitude that when, it, when things are going great, that's awesome. You know, we can give a, it's easy to give a testimony. But when things get tough, that's when we have to dig in and say, no, God is who he says he is. I am who God says that I am, and I will do what he's told me to do. I will, we will finish. And that's what Nehemiah said. The God of heaven will give us success. We are his servants. We, his servants, will start rebuilding. But as for you, you have no share in Jerusalem. The problem is, is that the opposition did not melt away immediately. Wouldn't that be a great story that they went, oh, gosh, you know, I guess this is all of God. We're going to get out of the way. We'll leave you guys alone. Oh, man, this is wonderful. No, they they got even angrier. So, you know, many times people will say, well, you know, this can't be God's will because I'm, I'm running into opposition. And then we, we, we make our stand. We quote our verses. We, we, we make our faith confession. And then things get worse. And then we really have opportunity to think, man, is this God? Wouldn't it be easy if it's God? If it's really God, I shouldn't be having this trouble. Well, the truth is, no. If it's really God, that means Satan's going to try to stop even more. The enemy. When I say state, Satan, I mean the enemy. The enemy to whatever God, God has uh, for you to do. Chapter 3. Eliashib, the high priest, and his fellow priests went to work and rebuilt the sheep gate. They dedicated it and set its doors in place, building as far as the tower of the hundred, which they dedicated as far as the tower of Hananel. So the priests, the first workers mentioned were priests. 
It says he rose up to do the work with the other priests. It is important that Eliashib was the high priest. He acted as a godly leader. It isn't just Nehemiah who makes it, who is the example. Other leaders had to come on board. Other leaders had to be had to had to fulfill their part because if they would have waited, well, let's 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 let somebody else start. Then it could have stopped before it even started. They needed somebody of of, of leadership quality. That says, okay, let's go. Somebody's got to be first. Somebody's got to be the first one across no man's land in a war. Exactly. So, he acted as a godly leader should. He was out in front of the work leading by example. He did not act as if he was too spiritual for the hard work of rebuilding the walls. Now, interestingly, we'll get there in a second, there were some people who thought they were too good to do the work. And they are also named. So he got, you know, uh, God made sure that the first person to start working was named for being a hard worker. But he also named the ones who weren't, who thought they were too good to be working. And that's a, you know, how'd you like to have your name in there for all eternity and for teaching purposes that you were lazy and didn't get involved? If you are a leader, others are looking hard at you and they will follow your example. If you are slow to work, they will all be also. If you are full of discouragement and doubt, they will also follow in that way. There is a good reason why Eliashib was first mentioned and why the rest of the chapter is filled with the names of more than 50 others that followed his example in the work. So, starts describing the work. Who's doing what? so on and so forth. Verse 5 is one that I want to look at because we're not going to look at all of them. It's just a bunch of names that I can't say. And they're in there. They're in there for historical purposes. But verse 5 says, The next section was repaired by the men of Tekoa, but their their nobles would not put their shoulders to the work under under their supervisors. So literally, the idea in the Hebrew is that they would not submit. They would not bend their necks to what the Lord had wanted them to do. The real issue was submission. Maybe they thought they had a better plan. Maybe they thought they didn't like how Nehemiah was doing. For, but for whatever reason, um, you can be sure that they regarded it later because it was written for all history, all people to read that they didn't get into the work. Um, they were they were the only people mentioned that didn't work. Interesting. So we start going down. Tells about all these different people who did work. Named a bunch of them. <clears throat> all the way to verse thirty-two. The chapter shows the need for believers to work together to accomplish something. It pleased God to see his people working together in one accord, with one heart, one mind. God will also put us into situations where we must work together and learn how to lead, how to follow, how to work together. And that happens today. That happens in in all kinds of situations, real life situations in a church. Because you, you start heading in a direction and the leadership says, we're going to head in this direction. And there will be people who join in immediately. And they start putting their hands to the plow. And they start doing what, what, what God's told them to do. 
And then there will be people who go, nah, I'm not going to do that. And they buck the system. And, you know, maybe we don't write down, maybe we should. Maybe we should record <laughs> names. But God, for sure, notices it. He, he takes notice of it. And so, um, but he does that on purpose. He, he puts us into situations where we have to make a choice. Do we follow? Do we do we submit? Do we get involved, or do we do we go against the flow? So the wall was continuous. Any gap compromised the entire structure. Therefore, each space in the wall was important, even if someone didn't think it was. As well, the wall could never be strong if someone was tearing it down at a different different section. The work done was a reflection on the family, because all these families' names, the, the family name was mentioned first. And so, you know, the, the, it was not just the individual doing the work, but it was the family, you know, for all history, the wall of Jerusalem was, was built by these people, and their family names are... I'm going to push that door shut. All the family names were uh, noted for posterity. So, it is in the family, our children, it's important for our children to learn how to work. And the parents must be committed to teaching their children how to be hard workers. In a spiritual sense, our hard work, or lack of it, is a reflection on our spiritual family. Each Christian should be a good reflection of their spiritual family. All right. Ten minutes to get through. We're not even going to get to today's. We're already a, we're a whole day behind. We, we will be a whole day there. We'll go into January. It's okay. We might catch up at different times. Chapter 4. When Sanballat heard that we were rebuilding the wall, he became angry and was greatly incensed. He ridiculed the Jews and in the presence of his associates and the army of Samaria, he said, What are these feeble Jews doing? Will they restore their wall? Will they offer sacrifices? Will they finish in a day? Can they bring the stones back to life from those heaps of rubble burned as they are? So Sanballat and Tobiah were first deeply disturbed when they heard that uh, heard a man wanted to help the people of, of Jerusalem. Then they used scorn and intimidation to prevent the work from starting. Now that the work had begun, they were furious and, and indignant. So they kept raising the stakes. They kept getting more and more against what God was doing. And like most attacks of discouragement, there was a trace of truth in the words. That's the problem. That's the that's the the hard part is, you know, right. You know, are they going to rebuild this wall from the from the, you know, the the smoldering heaps? I mean, are they are they going to get this done in a day? Well, of course they're not going to get it done in a day. And and but if they, if if the people had listened to them, they could have gotten discouraged also, but they didn't. Sanballat and Tobiah sought to bring the discouragement through criticism. Uh, Charles Swindoll points out that there were many of them together doing the sarcastic, mocking criticism and observes critics run with critics. One measure of a leader is to be able to measure criticism. 
to not allow one to be run down by the critical while still be sensitive to God's voice even in the midst of criticism. That's it, a, a, such a true statement. You know, just because somebody tells you that you're wrong and you shouldn't do it doesn't mean you shouldn't. But you have to be soft to the fact that you're listening because if there could be some truth in what they're saying. You, you want to be teachable but not a pushover at the same time. And that's... Because every, anybody will tell you, I mean, and it doesn't matter. When I say leader, I, I don't mean just the leader of a church, a parent. You know, somebody can walk up to you and say, well, you know, you're, you're raising your kid wrong. You know, you're, you're not doing this right, and you're not doing If I was their parent, this is what I would do, you know. And they're being critical. And the thing is, if, if somebody's being critical of your parenting skill, you, you don't you, you know first thing we need to do is not be a pushover and go yeah you're probably right you know I, I'll raise my kids the way you want me to raise them but at the same time we need to be soft and teachable and say okay is there a shred of truth in this is there something I can take away from this criticism um, and knowing how to decipher that knowing knowing where the balance lies not not being so uh, closed off to when people you know criticize that you never that you never listen to them because then you might miss something that you needed to hear. It's a balance and it's hard. But Nehemiah just kept saying, "Well, I know what God said I'm to do, and this is where I'm going," and he kept moving forward. What they were saying was true. They're not going to be able to rebuild in a day. They're not. It's not going to be what it used to be. But amazingly, the walls still stand. You know, the, up until the Roman, uh, you know, the, the Romans tore them down. Discouragement is such a powerful weapon because it is somewhat, um, somewhat the opposite of faith. Where faith believes God and his love and promises, discouragement looks for and believes the worst and tends to pretty much forget about who God is and what he has promised to do. Verse 3. Tobiah the Ammonite, who was at his side, said, What are they building? Even a fox climbing up on it would break down the walls of stones. So Tobiah made a huge mistake. He called the wall their stone wall. It wasn't their stone wall. It was criticizing God's wall, God's work. Critics who bring nothing but discouragement often miss what God is doing because they don't like the wall. They can't believe it's God's work. In the same way, the church the church is God's church. It's not my church. It's not our church. It's God's church. God loves his bride. One should always be careful about the way we talk about Jesus' bride. Verse 4. Hear us, O God, for we are despised. This is, this is Nehemiah talking. Turn their insults back on their own heads. Give them, a, give them over as plunder in a land of captivity. Do not cover up their guilt or blot out their sins from your sight, for they have thrown insults in the face of the builders. So Nehemiah's response was a great example. He didn't debate it. He didn't form a committee. He didn't even deal with the two enemies directly. Instead, he took it immediately to God. That is the way you deal with it. You know, and, and, and God has an amazing ability, because he's God, 
to be able to take that situation and reveal to you what's truth and what isn't. He, he, he has an amazing ability to cut through, you know, if, if, we, if we remove ourselves from the emotion of the, of the criticism, God can show you, you know, here's the deal. Keep doing what I told you to do. But, yeah, you kind of do this. You kind of act this way. So you you kind of, he, he, you know, he's God. He's un, it's uncanny how he knows us. And he knows exactly what, what we need to, to hear. And so he didn't, go, he didn't deal with the, it, what happens is we get involved with, uh, with the critic. And we get emotionally tied around it. And then we get wrapped around the axle. And then we can lose focus. Even though we, we disagree and we're not going to follow what they want, we can still harm our, our, our forward momentum by getting involved with the critic. And that's we don't want to do that. Verse 6. So we rebuilt the wall till all of it reached half its height. For the people worked with all their heart. So God answered their prayer by giving them a mind to work. Um, Satan was trying to trying to destroy with his attacks was their mind to work. He was trying to discourage them from even trying. He could not stop them. And we're going to see that. We know now from history <coughs> that they built the wall in 54 days. A miracle. Absolute miracle. But the only way he could have stopped it was to discourage them and cause them to quit. It's the same way in our lives today. The only way he can keep you from fulfilling God's plan for your life is for you to quit. That is an amazing, that, that's one of the things I quote to myself that I encourage myself with all the time is, you know, I can mess things up even. I can, I can do the wrong thing part of the time and God's will will still get fulfilled because he's, he's already figured in my humanness. The only way that this isn't going to work is if I quit. The only way that this isn't going to be fulfilled. Um, the church, okay, as the pastor of this church, it's my responsibility to, to attend it, take care of it, help, you know, shepherd the people, lead, and make decisions that, that direct it in a certain direction. And Satan is continuously, constantly telling me, you're going to screw it up. You're going to mess it up. You're going to break something. You're going to break people. You're going to, this whole thing's going to fail. And I continually tell myself, you know what? God is sovereign. God is God, is God and he will accomplish. He, he will build his church, even despite me. So the only way that he will not do, finish the work of this, of this body, is if I quit. If I just give up on it and go, you know what? Forget it. So what does Satan try to do? He tries to get you to quit. He just that's that's the he 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 directs the and, and whatever attack comes, it usually is directed to make you quit. Same thing in marriage. Same thing in a job situation, same thing in whatever you do. You know, I was going to college and there was an all kinds of things that came came against me to try to get me to quit going to college. You know, so whatever God tells you to do, there will always be that attack to discourage you and make you quit. Because if you don't quit, you will succeed. You will fulfill God's plan for your life. Um, and I'll close with this. Uh, 
Yes. So was that the first time or the second attempt you made at Calvary? Second time. First time wasn't. Uh, okay. The yeah, first first time was not God was not involved with my decisions. Okay. Or my decision making. All right. Yeah, I was running away from that. And because I quit, I failed. See. But then going back, that was different. That was that was a God deal. Yeah, and I had all kinds of of things that tried to divert me and try to take my focus off of finishing, and yeah, it was pretty pretty cool. Uh, Lester Summerall. Lester Summerall was an amazing minister, pastor, teacher, uh, humanitarian. Uh, at the end of his life, when he was in his 60s, he started uh, buying and outfitting ocean liners to carry humanitarian aid to impoverished areas around the world. Um, millions and millions and millions and millions of dollars that God brought across his, into his hands to, to feed the poor, to bring medical supplies around the world. And at the end of it, at the end of his life, one of the things that he said was, he goes, I never did anything great for God. The only thing I didn't do, or the only thing I did, was I didn't quit. He just kept moving forward. He kept being obedient to, 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 the, to his ability. And, and he would have been the first to say, he says, I didn't do everything right. I didn't make every right choice. I didn't have a right attitude in, in, in all of it. But he didn't quit. And look what God did through him. The, that ministry is still doing those things, even past his, his, his death. Amen. All right. Oh, look at that. One minute over. Who wants to pray? Thanks, Jane. Thank you for this time together. And Father, just thank you for Pastor John and the wisdom that you've given him. And Lord, whatever you have touched our hearts with tonight, Lord, I ask that you continue to let that work in us. Yes. And get us home safely tonight, Lord. And dry. That too. <laughs> Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Praise the Lord. We will actually, I'm almost positive, get through all of next one because there's tons of names and tons of records in the next one. So I've said that before, though. It means nothing. It means absolutely nothing. I gave this story on Sunday about, uh, I think it was, the one I'm thinking about is, is the, the woman that was displaced called to get out of the house and that she. That, the process of getting her um, a house built and yep. mm -hmm. the thing that I I was thinking about as as you described how it didn't just happen through one person that, that actually required I mean the, the family had bricks and there's other people that so many pieces to put together to, yep. that, to work that it was a perfect example, example of a kingdom and, and here we see an example of where it wasn't supposed to be a single person who was going to do it all but it, it actually really depended upon um, the unity of, of the group to, to actually have it work yeah, and most of the time God doesn't want to work through one person. It, it's a, 
it's a group of people or it's a it's it's a a bigger deal than just one person. Absolutely. That's the kingdom. <laughs>